From 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR, this is Lake Effect. I'm Joy Powers. Today, astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson joins us to talk about science from his favorite stargazing memory to how to get adults to better understand it. Milwaukee native and actress Jane Kismarek talks about her return to the stage in her hometown. I was in all the plays in high school at Greendale High School, which was, and had a wonderful teacher who really uh, encouraged me at a time when nobody went into this. I graduated from high school at 74, and there was really no celebrity teen culture then. And Milwaukee rappers celebrate how hip hop has influenced them and how Milwaukee has influenced their art. When you wake up, you eat some cereal, that's hip hop, you know? When you take care of the earth, that's hip hop. Hip hop is part of war peace. All of that is coming up on Lake Effect. But first, here are today's headlines. This is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. I'm Joy Powers, and thank you so much for joining us. Today, we're looking back on some of our favorite conversations from 2023. We'll start with the man himself, Neil deGrasse Tyson. He's probably best known as your personal astrophysicist. You may have seen him as a guest on various news or late-night TV shows, explaining the science we come across in daily life. Tyson is also an author, podcast host, and heads the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. But no matter the role he takes on, they all share one thing in common popularizing science by making it accessible and exciting. He gave a lecture in Milwaukee last year, and that's when he joined Lake Effect's Audrey Nowakowski to talk about his work. Neil deGrasse Tyson, welcome to Lake Effect. It's an honor to speak with you today. Well, thank you. Thank you. And I like the name Lake Effect. Is that, does that refer to the source of moisture that creates snow in the winter? Yes, and right in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, we're right by Lake Michigan here, so we thought it was an appropriate name. <laughs> there it is. I love it. I love the meteorological uh, innuendo there, so it's good. Yeah. Well, and of course, while I have you, and speaking of all things science, I want to start off with the concept of scientific literacy. What is it, and how do you think we can foster this not only in young children, but as adults as well? Yeah, I uh, contrary to what many people think of me, I generally focus on adults rather than on children. Children are born curious. They're scientists, basically, uh, minus the laws of physics and nature that they have yet to learn. They are as inquisitive as any adult scientist is about the natural world. So I, I, I don't actually worry about them. I worry about the adults who are teaching them <laughs> later on. And I worry about what happens when you emerge uh, into the ranks of what we would call educated uh, citizens of the world. What happens is upon graduation, people ossify in whatever, but no matter what point you graduate, is it high school or is it college or graduate school? Typically, people ossify right at the point when they graduated. And they, uh, I've stereotyped this, but imagine people run down the steps, toss their books in the air and said, school's out. You know, there's even an Alice Cooper song that anthemically celebrates, you know, school's out for summer, school's out forever. And it's like, really, you, you're, you're glad there's no more school? So that means there's a failure in the educational system to make it such that you are glad when you no longer have to learn. And I, so that's a first, let's just start there. More specifically about science, we're taught just what science knows 
in our classes, you get this fat textbook and, and you got to memorize the boldface words. That's the vocabulary. And you, and you take the test and then you move on. And at no time are we really taught what science is or how and why it works. That's what's missing. Is that the start of the disconnect? So, you know, school's out. And then as adults, there's, you know, I guess maybe only a matter of time before that failure and disconnect starts where we seem to forever be facing, especially in the past few years with the pandemic, where people don't agree what is science, when, how it works, what's an objective truth? What does it mean to be convinced of something? You know, do you think this is where the failure starts is when we think, oh, we don't yes. need this knowledge anymore. Let me carry well, on. Well, not only do, you, do they think they don't need it, but when they did learn the science, they didn't learn science the way science is actually practiced, which is on the frontier. It's a messy, bloody, well, not bloody, but it's, it's a messy, confused frontier because you don't know what's going to come down the pipe. And so if someone does some research and they get a result, somebody else doesn't. And the press runs to it, by the way. Someone else gets another result that's different and they report on that. And then the public thinks the scientists don't know what we're doing when they're being exposed to the, the very frontier where objective truths are being sifted and established. And so if the CDC gives, holding aside political issues or, or communication challenges that they had, uh, if the CDC announces something based on research one month, and then they announce something different or improved or slightly altered, you can't say, well, I don't know what to believe then, you know, you the, because that if you say that, it means you don't know how science works. Science is an ever progressing approach towards an objective truth, which when you get multiple studies that agree, and I'm not talking about opinions here, I'm talking about results of data and observations and experiment. When they agree, then we say, we got a new truth, put it in the books and let's keep moving forward. And in the era of experimental science, that's how we built civilization to deal with it. And don't tell me I don't trust science. Oh, wait a minute. I got a call on my smartphone from someone 4,000 miles away. Oh, and let me find out what the shortest distance is to grandma's house in traffic on my smartphone. Oh, but I don't trust science. Really? Really? So speaking of... I'm to get all excited about that, but that's my answer. No, it's, it's a good thing to get excited about. And a lot of things have influenced you in your life before you became known as, you know, our personal astrophysicist. And one big component of that was studying under Carl Sagan. And he was a professor of astronomy at Cornell when you first met him. And one of your many takeaways from learning from Carl was, quote, if I'm ever as remotely as famous as Carl Sagan, I'll treat the next generation of scientists the way he has treated me. So can you share some of those tenets you've developed over your career based on this promise you made to yourself? Yeah. So uh, Carl Sagan was not a mentor to me in the traditional sense we might think of that word. It's possible to mentor someone even if you never interact with them, just by example. All right. And in Carl Sagan, I, by the way, just to be clear, I was probably in his presence maybe six times in my life. Okay. So it's mostly just the impact someone can have when there's this sort of resonance between your goals and the wisdom that they share with you. And so he spent time with me when I was 17 years old. He didn't know me from anything. I'd applied to Cornell, had not decided whether I would attend. And the admissions office sent him my application, which was dripping with the universe. And they said, maybe this is somebody. Said, he, he invited me up. And I went there. I said, my gosh, how do you do what? what? And he, he handed me a book that he wrote and signed it. 
and drove me and, and drove me at the end of the day, drove me back to the bus station is upstate New York it began to snow. This was in December. And he said, you know, if it's, if the bus can't get through if this, here's my home number, call me, spend the night with my family, leave tomorrow. It's like, what? And I said, oh my gosh, he's investing in the future in me. So I kind of, like I said, if I'm ever that famous, I remember thinking this at the time, I will give attention to the next generation of students who want to do what I'm doing. I will give them the attention above all else. So I, I joke about this. I'd be on the, on the phone and a student knocks on the door of my office. I say, Barack, I got to get back to you. I got a student. <laughs> I'll call you later. I got students I got to deal with here. So it, it's infused almost every aspect of my uh, pedagogical hat wearing. When I'm separate from being a scientist, I count myself among the ranks of educators. And that's in my portfolio, for sure. Do you consider being an educator as one of your key priorities? Would you say if this all went away, public speaking, being the people's astrophysicist, would teaching still be plenty to fulfill you? Well, so no, it's uh, I'm a little more complicated than that. If I have my choice, I would actually just stay in the lab. And you would never know I even existed. And in fact, I look forward to the day where other people, many more people, a lot are there now, uh, join this landscape of science education. If you look on social media, there are many people who have entire YouTube channels and, and Instagram streams devoted to doing cool science things at home, uh, learning about science. So there's a swell in the ranks of those who are active in, in these efforts. So what I want to do is have that be large enough so that I can tiptoe backwards, exit the back door, go to the Bahamas, and you won't even know I left. <laughs> and so I'm happy to have done my contributed the bit that I have, but it can't just be all needle all the time. Then my efforts will have failed if people learning science requires that I be a part of that equation. Then I, I then I didn't it didn't work. And just the way Carl tried to make sure he didn't have to be part of that equation. All right. If you provided you pass the torch and keep it going. So no, and I don't need to be remembered for any of that. Just, just keep moving forward. It's not about me. It's about you. So let's say you had to move out of the sciences and being in the lab wasn't an option and you had to pick a job in the humanities. What field would you choose and why? Oh yeah. I, I great. Thanks for that question. Uh, does it matter if I have talent in that? <laughs> no. Let's just say dream job that's okay, not okay, related, whatever. Yeah. Thanks for that. For that. <laughs> um, I think I would be a songwriter for Broadway musicals. That's what I, I love. love that. I love musicals, uh, even the corny ones, you know, uh, two people meet each other and they fall in love. And they, there's a moment where they can no longer express it in words. So they have to sing a song. I remember as a kid saying, that's stupid. If you just feel that way, why sing a song? Why are you wasting my time? I remember it as a kid, but then I realized, oh my gosh, a song reaches deeper into our state of emotion and our into our feelings. It's, songs go beyond words in ways that affect us viscerally. And so as I became more and more facile with the language, with words, with, with communication, really, I said to myself, I want to participate in that exercise. And I want to write the simple song that uh, conveys not only ideas, but emotions and advances the plot. And so, yeah, so that would, that's what I would be. I love that answer. One more question for you in the time I have. 
Speaking of visceral memories, do you have a favorite stargazing memory or any other kind of related scientific memory? Oh, of course. Yeah, yeah. So in the old days, because that's how old I am, we would go on pilgrimages to mountaintops to the telescopes. Okay. The theorists would stay at home on their computers. I was a little bit of both. So I would go to mountaintops and they're far away. I went to mountains in the Andes Mountains of Chile for my PhD thesis. And you're there and you and you takes a day or two, do you convert and you live nocturnally. So your day is the night. Your day begins at sunset. All right. And I'm there and I'd be listening to music, uh, typically some bombastic classical bit. And uh, as the morning draws near, that you, it's a full night of observing and data gathering, I would time it so that like the final chords of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony would be playing as the dome uh, slit closed. And, would go, and then I'd walk out and I'd see dawn. Those are, those are, you can't, you can't, you have to feel that and experience it to real, it's almost a spiritual encounter with the cosmos when you have that. So the music, the data, the science, the sky, the mountaintop, it's all there. Yeah, wouldn't I'll, trade it for anything. Well, Neil deGrasse Tyson, I want to thank you so much for joining me today. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you. And I'm coming to Milwaukee. I'm going to be there. Yes, I'm looking, looking forward to that. Talking about movies. I love movies and talking about science in the movies. The science they get right and also the science they get wrong. I'm going to call that out. <laughs> and not just movies that are science fiction. It's all... Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. In fact, most of the movies are, are not science fiction movies. Uh, talk about uh, The Wizard of Oz. Talk about A Bug's Life. Uh, there's some interesting films in there that you never knew had some science. And that's what I'm for, to show you... <laughs> show you how that went down yeah we're definitely looking forward to having you thanks for having me then neil degrasse tyson is an astrophysicist author podcast host and the head of the hayden planetarium in new york city he spoke with lake effects audrey nowakowski when he was in town for a lecture in february last year 2023 marked 50 years of hip-hop music and Milwaukee made some of its own unique contributions to the genre. We'll explore that later in the show. But first, we'll speak with the actress Jane Kaczmarek of Malcolm in the Middle about her return to the stage in Milwaukee. That's coming up next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Listening to Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Actress Jane Kaczmarek is a self described big mouth Polish girl from Milwaukee who rose to fame as the character Lois on Malcolm in the Middle. She returned to her hometown last May to perform in Theater Gigante's production of Spalding Gray Stories Left to Tell. That's when she joined me in studio along with Isabel Kral the founder and joint artistic director of Theater Gigante. So Jane, I'm curious about your experiences here in Milwaukee. What are your first like theatrical experiences here in the city? My first theatrical experience was probably at Jeremiah Curtin 
grade school when I was a peach blossom in kindergarten, and I convinced all the other peach blossoms that we were supposed to exit stage right when we were supposed to <laughs> exit stage left. And they all believed me and followed me. And my mother thinks that that was the first time I realized, hmm, I can get people to do what I want on stage. <laughs> um, but I have very happy memories of being a baton twirler, a baton twirler with the Candettes, which was a big deal in the early 60s. There were so many parades, the South Shore Water Frolics, and oh, the parades in Milwaukee were fabulous. And I think twirling a baton in a furry hat was a theatrical experience, and I still love parades. And high school, I was in a lot of pl- I was in all the plays in high school at Greendale High School, which was and had a wonderful teacher, Ron Kane, who really uh, encouraged me at a time when nobody went into this. I graduated from high school in '74, and there was really no celebrity teen culture then. Um, the Mouseketeers were on after school, there were, but there was no social media. And went to University of Wisconsin and got a degree in education as we talked, and then got into graduate school and started wor- working professionally after that. But Milwaukee was, Milwaukee was a great place to grow up. Um, it was a great place to grow up. I remember taking the bus to see a production of Carousel at Mercy High School. And I can't believe my parents let me do this, but that was a great thing too in those days. You know, I was, I was in sixth grade and I took the bus to see this production of this musical. I don't even know how I knew about it. But my parents didn't worry where I was or when I was coming back. You know, you were a kid and you found your way around Milwaukee. And it has great happy memories. What's it like being back in town after your success as an actor and now doing theater in Milwaukee? Well, it's who says you can't go home again? I mean, I'm I'm certainly enjoying that. Mark Anderson, who is Isabel's partner and husband, partner with the theater company, and I knew each other in high school. He went to Whitnell. I went to Greendale. But he had a family that was enviable. His father was in charge, I think, the art programs at Milwaukee Public Schools. Their house was modern and had gorgeous art in it. And this was very different from, again, where my neighborhood. And Mark took asked me to see a production of Our Town at the Milwaukee Rep in 1973, maybe. It's the first time I'd ever seen it. And I was hysterical weeping and remember thinking, can theater make people feel this? This might be something I want to tell stories like this. But that experience with Mark Anderson in high school and that play uh, really cemented our friendship. And so coming back here and working with Mark and Isabel at Theater Gigante has been a real, it's a wonderful, fun homecoming. The production that you'll be doing, it's all about Spalding Gray. For people who don't know that much about Spalding Gray, Isabel Jane, how would you describe his life, his work? Well, I think he was an amazing artist, and, you know, he's referred to as a master monologist. Um, Before I started working with Mark, because I had started the company in 87, and Mark joined in 99, before that, Mark did a lot of monologues. And so, and he knew Spalding Gray, and so I was also fortunate to meet him um, through Mark. And when Spalding died, Kathy Russo, his widow, had created this piece with Lucy Sexton. And we saw it in New York, and we just absolutely loved it because it does celebrate his work. For me, he was so honest on that stage, and it was such an incredible combination of wide-eyed wonder of life and of his own life. It was so non-judgmental. 
And I was in awe of someone who could sit on stage and not have any secrets. I mean, <laughs> he, he could tell it all, no problem. And yet, despite the fact that he was, you know, telling his life on stage, he had technique. He knew how to present it. He knew the dynamics of performance. He, he was impeccable. His writing is so beautiful. Yeah. I mean, it's a... Um and it's an interesting time. I, I know with social media, which, and I'm not saying this for any other reason, but I don't have social media, but I know people will chronicle their day so that their 375,000 friends can see what they had for breakfast. <laughs> and I was thinking that that's kind of a, something that has evolved from the idea of a man sitting at a desk, as he does in these, and telling you about an afternoon that something happened that, was, that he wants to share with you and is beautifully told, beautifully written, and a sense of irony, a sense of um, Yeah, he has surprise, the capacity of hilarity. and That you love go- listening to these yeah. um, musings of his. And it will be, as I said, what happened on an afternoon, what happened on the beach yeah. with a guy yeah. coming up to him. And I think that, unfortunately, all the kind of oversharing that happens on social media now, or perfection, you know, that I know the pictures are perfect of someone showing you what they looked like. Spalding Gray was not that, as you said. He, he, yeah, he's a storyteller. I mean, above and, all else, And he's isn't a afraid to show you the warts yeah. of himself yeah. in telling the story. Yeah. And what I love about his work is it's not sentimental at all. It's hilarious at times. It's moving at times. It's profound at times. Um, He makes incredibly beautiful observations, but it's not sentimental. There's a wonderful pragmatism, a refreshing pragmatism to his outlook on life. And humor. One of the stories, one of the uh, pieces I read in, in our production of Stories Left to Tell is about him being the stage manager in Our Town on Broadway. And I love that because Mark and I met, not met, but, you know, we shared an Our Town experience together, he and I. And so to be talking about Spalding Gray's Our Town experience and the piece happens during arguably the most beautiful transcendental time in the third act of Our Town. And Spalding Gray relays something that happened on stage one night that just kicks the sentimentality (laughs) out of that story. And it's... And it's just masterful that he takes an audience down this and and it's about, and they're waiting, aren't they? They're waiting for something they know is coming, something um, uh, important and great. And, and then he tells a story of what happened on stage that... Um, and yet it beautifully, it kicks that out of the way, and yet it beautifully underscores the art of theater, <laughs> that anything can happen. And, you know... You couldn't write a funnier... Ending. <laughs> or more ironic yeah. Yeah. to this piece than what Thornton Wilder actually wrote. So as they always say, go back to the page, yeah. right? Yes. It's interesting to look at this and specifically his words in the context of kind of the world that we live in today in which, yes, so much of our lives are curated for this larger audience and with kind of this God's eye perspective on who we are and our place in the world versus, uh, yes, often the intimacy of theater. When you look at this production and the stories that you're telling, what do you hope the audience really takes away with them when they leave that theater? I think it's an affirmation of life. And I think even though we may not have had those specific adventures, I think he holds a mirror to life itself. 
and I hope that they walk away as, as, you know, we do when we work with this material, uplifted and amused at life and accepting of life and loving life. And it also, I mean, I think with all my, well, my favorite playwrights or authors, brings it down to what I've heard called the sacred ordinary. It's just the things to have gratitude about, you know, the things that really make your life truly rich and those relationships with other people. What happens at the end of the yeah. the gathering of everybody at the end of this? Or his talks about his father and little moments that you wish it would have been different. You wish you had a relationship maybe with a parent that isn't what it is. But at the end of the day, be grateful for what it is and know you love him and he loves you and just keep going. What Kathy and Lucy did is they took the five aspects of his life that Kathy thought were most important to him. And they are love, family, adventure, career, and journals. And so each actor in the piece is one of those categories. And so it is very much about family and love and um, his feelings of what was important to him. And it's a beautiful structure, too. I yeah. was thinking about yeah, that. Yeah, they because, did a nice job You know, that. when you think of the five of us in this production, you know that when one or the other that I talk about, you know, his interviewing for the Johnny Carson show, his career, things that happened in his career. Um, Isabel talks about love and experiences with love and children. So you know when each actor starts speaking that, oh, this is going to be kind of Part, that part of his life or something. It, there's a, a form and a structure to it that I think audiences will really... Yeah. And they also beautifully um, started when he was really young and, and really did progress yeah, to he had, his death. You know, he had no they, idea what he was going to do. Yeah. so many people don't. I mean, that's an But the way they put together too. also all the stories in this, it takes you through his life mm-hmm. from, from youth mm, it to, does, right, to right. when he died. This is also Theater Gigante's 35th anniversary, which uh, for people who are not in theater, that is a huge deal. To be here 35 years (laughs) is is. incredible. And I can also say in 35 years that we've always operated in the black. (laughs) That's, yes, I've never heard of it. I know, right? So a lot of the work we do, Mark and I write, and it's hybrid and it involves movement and video and this and that, but we don't do mainstream plays. But the plays that we have done have all involved monologuing and breaking that fourth wall where you're talking to the audience. So A, this piece is really appropriate for what we like to do, and B, because Spalding is one of our favorite artists, uh, we feel it's sort of a gem in our 35th anniversary Mm -hmm. season. I should also say, when you asked me about Milwaukee, was no matter where I moved to, my mother always clipped from the Milwaukee (laughs) Journal the reviews of Mark Anderson's plays. And Mark worked in, well, he's been with you since 19... Uh, uh, we did our Theater first Gigante. show together. and Yeah, Theater Gigante started in 87. Then we did our first show. I had called him and asked if he would come aboard to write uh, an It's a Wonderful Life version adaptation. We kind of liked each other, and uh, <laughs> the rest is history. And then he came here in 99 and became joint artistic director. So, But all these things, my mother would always send, and the <laughs> reviews were always so stellar. To me, going off whatever I wasn't doing, the idea of coming back to Milwaukee and working with them was always a really exciting proposition. Well, thank you both. Thank you. Oh, it was so much fun. Thank you very much. (laughs) 
Jane Kaczmarek is a Milwaukee native and actor, perhaps best known as Lois, from Malcolm in the Middle. Isabel Kral is the founder and joint artistic director of Theater Gigante, which is celebrating its 35th season. They both performed in the company's production of Spalding Gray, Stories Left to Tell, in May of last year. And did you know you can listen to Lake Effect as a podcast? Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to download and listen on demand. You can also follow WUWM on Instagram, where you'll find videos and pictures from news stories and Lake Effect interviews. We'll take one more break, and when we come back, we'll look at the history of hip-hop in Milwaukee and what the city has contributed to the genre. That's next on Lake Effect on 89.7 WUWM. Milwaukee's NPR. This is WUWM's Mayan Silver. Today's Sounds Like Milwaukee episode brings in a special guest. My name is Rob Larry. I'm the host of All Things Considered here at 89.7 WUWM. That's Milwaukee's NPR. I also have the privilege and honor of serving as the digital producer here at the station. I love it. Okay, so you know that WWM is doing a project of our favorite sounds. Yes. And I was walking in the hallway once, bumped into you, started talking about the project, and you mentioned that you have a favorite sound. I do have a favorite sound. I think the sound that, that I find soothing is the ding from my iPhone when someone is reaching out to me or someone is texting me. Got it. It can be my lovely wife, who I, you know, have frequent communications with and always brightens my day. Or maybe it's my father, who is um, a big fan of mine, always has been, always listens to All Things Considered every day, and uh, might text me after a break, hey, son, that was really interesting, or I love hearing you, or I was just at the grocery store listening to you, and, you know, those types of things. And I think the thing that really strikes me about that is that a hundred years ago, we didn't have, you know, this was not something that, that people had at their disposal. You know, it was just staying in touch with something that was, that took a lot more effort. And now with the push of a button, I could be face to face with someone on another continent. I mean, that, that is amazing. Rob says he really started to value the sound in the pandemic. It's not so much about the technology in and of itself, but it's about what it, what it does. It's about staying connected, reaching out to people that you haven't heard from in a while, and making sure that we don't get too busy to tell the people that we love that we love them. Oh, I love that. So for all the people that are like, ugh, another text, or I have to go on my phone, you you just kind of want to say, you know, look, it's actually kind of a beautiful thing that we can be so connected to the people that we love so easily. Yeah, yeah absolutely. You know, it, it's... um. I had a great relationship with my mother, and she's deceased now, but one of the last things that she ended up telling me shortly before she passed away is something that's really impacted my life was when when people mean something to you, tell them. You reach out to them then. You know, we, we often don't reflect on the impact that people had in our lives until they're gone, and it was certainly impactful that she said that shortly before her life ended here on this earth. So follow Rob's lead. Get in those bleeps and bloops. Text someone that you love today. And also be thankful that we don't have to use carrier pigeons. Exactly. Carrier pigeons, you know, smoke signals, telegrams, uh, you know, those types of things. Send in your favorite sounds. And you don't even need to use a carrier pigeon. 
Go to wuwm.com for the instructions. My Jan Silver, 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. is Lake Effect from 89.7 WUWM. I'm Joy Powers. Now for a look at Milwaukee's hip-hop story. Latching on to the city's breakdancing and skate scenes in the late 70s and early 80s, hip-hop has shaped the city like it's shaped culture worldwide. Last year was the 50th anniversary of hip-hop. Lake Effect Sam Woods spoke with Milwaukee rappers and artists from the 1980s to today about how the city has influenced their art and how hip-hop has influenced them. It's August 11, 1973. You just arrived at a back-to-school party in the Bronx, and you hear something like this. This is DJ Cool Hurt. This is going out to my man over in Japan. You talk to 50 years later, the party you're at is recognized as the birth of hip-hop. And the extended instrumental you're hearing will provide the blueprint for a culture-defining art and a multi-billion dollar industry. From this point, hip-hop would grow from an offshoot of disco to its ubiquitous place in our culture today. But today, I'm not going to tell you the whole story of hip-hop. I know my limits as a journalist, and I know that I cannot condense 50 years of culture into a single segment. It's also not the complete story of Milwaukee hip-hop, for the same reason. But it is a sample of how Milwaukee has grown up with hip-hop, made it its own, and taken it worldwide, on stages, in literature, and even aquaponics. Yes, you heard that right. Hip-hop and aquaponics. We'll get back to that connection. We start our story in the late 1970s, when Twan Mack, who now is an active rapper making adult contemporary hip-hop, was growing up as a kid in Milwaukee, and was watching as hip-hop in its infancy was starting to take hold, and was latching on to Milwaukee's local breakdancing and skate cultures as it got started. When I came back to Milwaukee, Milwaukee was like a had a, like a drill team scene. It wasn't a, it wasn't it was still um, finding its way in terms of hip hop, and so and then it, there was also a big gang culture in Milwaukee around 1981, 1982. So I lived in a neighborhood uh, right off of Capitol, 24th and Capitol, uh, which is 53206, which is the most incarcerated zip code for black men per capita in the United States has been for the longest time. So at that time, it was still a familial atmosphere from a musical standpoint. Um, you had rappers, you had rap groups popping up here and there, but Doc B and I, we were like the first um, individuals to do hip-hop at a talent show in Milwaukee at Vincent High School, to be exact, and to win. You know what I mean? So I was like 11 years old winning a talent show. Doc was probably like a junior in high school. So Milwaukee's hip-hop um, culture, it was starting to grow. Um, the Jerry Curl was big back then, you know what I'm saying? Um, so. Um, along with places like the, the, the Skate Palace and Johnson Skate University, there was a big uh, skate culture in Milwaukee. And so hip-hop kind of started to find its way along those lines in terms of developing itself and artists starting to pop out here. So you kind of knew like hip-hop could go a, a lot of different ways. You can, it wasn't just a party atmosphere anymore. They were talking about social political issues. And so, you know, as a 12, 13-year-old, I knew that this culture was going to be here for quite a long time. Early on in the 80s and the 90s, and to an extent even today, it was difficult for rappers in Milwaukee to get notice elsewhere. The city just didn't get the attention from record execs that places on the East and the West Coast did. But this is Milwaukee, and in Milwaukee we fight, we scrap, we claw our way to our dreams, 
and we find a way to make them come true. Strickland is one-third of the hip-hop group EMC that formed in the late 90s. I wanted to ask Strick about his early influences in Milwaukee that helped build him up to eventually take his craft worldwide. It was a little bit um, to our disadvantage because we didn't have a lot of record execs. It was hard to kind of get signed, so I kind of had to go to New York to get that first look. But I still appreciate um, growing up in Milwaukee and being influenced by the, the music here. I was heavily influenced by a rap group out of the city named Attack, which featured speech from Arrested Development and a friend, a really, really good friend of mine who turned out to be my college roommate. His name was Ty Whitaker, AKA T.A. The Wiz. Uh, rest in peace to him. He was tragically murdered with his father at their home and he was taken off the earth too early, but he was uh, probably one of the first rappers that I looked up to in the city, as well as speech. And uh, so that's, what's, that's what really influenced uh, my skill level and my art back then, just trying to be on that level as this rap group that was out. They, they put vinyl out back then. I remember that was the first time I seen somebody uh, get some vinyl pressed up. Um, and then later on, it was Baby Drew and Cuckoo Cal, uh, Mr. Do It To Death. All these guys influenced me heavy. And being in a group with Words and Ace, those guys are from the East Coast. Me being from the Midwest, I think it kind of it kind of helped me in a way because my the way I talk the way my kind of like my twang on the lyrics kind of set me apart from them because it was hard keeping up with them lyrically so I needed I needed a little something to to be on my side so I think when my voice came in with the with the Midwest slang and twang I think that kind of set me apart and that helped me kind of keep up with these guys because we're kind of in the middle, so West Coast rappers were big here, East Coast rappers, down South rappers, so we kind of like the breadbasket, soaking up all of that stuff. I had a good life here in Milwaukee, um, although, you know, record-wise, record exec-wise, we didn't have the attention, but I uh, was definitely influenced by, by being from Milwaukee. The other current members of EMC, the group Strickland is in, are Wordsworth and Master Ace. And Wordsworth was actually in Milwaukee for the 50th anniversary of hip-hop, to teach a workshop on storytelling, and then perform a set at True School Summer Park Jam. Originally from Brooklyn, and now a middle school teacher in Florida, he's one of the rap OGs, one of those guys who has seen it all. He's been there in the 1980s, when his older sister was introducing him to his early influences like Run DMC. He was there in the 1990s, when he was featuring on albums by groups like A Tribe Called Quest and Blackstar. He's been there in the early 2000s when he was hosting a hip-hop sketch series on MTV called The Lyricist Lounge Show. And he's there today when he's teaching young people how to express themselves through hip-hop or other forms of art. And as someone who has seen rap grow and change through the decades, I wanted to know from his point of view how the cultural acceptance of hip-hop has changed over the years. People are actually not afraid to actually ask about hip-hop. Before it would be like Nipsey Hussle, they're gonna probably assume he's into some street stuff or gang stuff or whatever. But seeing that it's been celebrated on such a national level, Good Morning America, I think every week or every day has a new hip hop celebration thing. Um, you know, whatever, wherever you're at, your morning shows, your late night talk shows have celebrations. Uh, every award ceremony, what the Grammys this year did a whole thing about hip hop, right? So the fact that um, we're we're, we're helping, we're grasping the idea of hip hop, but also celebrating it nationally. It's getting, it's making people less, it's making people less um, 
less afraid, let's say, for the lack of better words. So years ago, the guy wouldn't ask what that picture is. Now everybody's like, they're feeling like kind of flooded with it. They can't escape yeah. it. They turn their radio on. They're like, it's even on this station. They turn on Good Day America. It's on Good Day America. What? It's on, the, <laughs> it's on The View. It's on this. It's on that. And Words brings up a hugely important point beyond just the art of hip-hop. It's everywhere now. You can't escape it. But this is America, and when something is that big, you can be sure there are people out there who see an opportunity to make a lot of money. And Arabian Prince is a rapper who knows this well. As a member of the original lineup of NWA, Arabian Prince has walked that journey from just making music with his friends to being at the center of a multi-billion dollar industry. So I asked him what he's learned from this journey about how to capture the monetary value of your art. Yeah, so here's a crazy twist. Corporate America for years has been using hip hop and sports, corporate America, you know, whatever, television, radio, um, clothing. And just now, in the last couple of years, they are actually showing it in a forward-facing way. Because before, they would use the styles, use the music, use the culture, but not really want to embrace it too much, right? But now you see Snoop Dogg like doing Skechers commercials. I never yeah. thought I would see Snoop Dogg yeah. doing a Skechers commercial. You got Ice-T doing like car insurance commercials. So it's become like, these dudes are gangster rappers, mm-hmm. right? And now they are the faces of Fortune 500 companies. So we're getting it. I think the fact that rappers have become business people, finally, and understood their worth, you know, and. The company's always understood it, but I think now the rappers understand their worth and trying to get a piece of the pie as well, whether it's, you know, pay me more or no, I'll just take a percentage, you know, because that's a smart way to go. Arabian Prince is from L.A., but it turns out he also has a connection to Milwaukee. He's involved in mentoring young artists here through True School, a youth arts education organization that engages and empowers Milwaukee's youth through hip-hop culture. When I teased earlier about the connection between hip-hop and aquaponics, True School is at the center of that. You'll hear more about True School in a bit. But first, don't think I forgot about the South Side. Quinto Sol is a hip-hop group based on the South Side that has been active for over 20 years. Their members Scribe, El Chivo, and DJ Payback Garcia draw influences from Milwaukee, as well as Mexico and Chicago, where they also have roots. I caught up quickly with Scribe after a show and asked him about his influences and how Quinto Sol reflects Milwaukee culture worldwide. I call it like our, our third home. First is, is where I was born, Mexico, right? Yeah. Then I moved to Chicago, Chicago is my home too. And Milwaukee is my home home, yeah, right? Because right. my seats are here now, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So pretty much we rap all the cities. Midwest, there's a lot to do with hip hop. Because you know, the East and the West, it's a mix of the Midwest, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's what we do. We bring in the Midwest all over the world. Because yeah. the experiences that we got here in Milwaukee, we share it with everybody. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's, that's what I feel like Quinto Soul brought to, to hip hop, the experience of the Midwest to the whole world. Sure. Through the eyes of the, an immigrant. Basically, when I see people that are that I see growing up, and then they come to see our shows. Yeah. It's all love. You know yeah, I mean? like you're, you're speaking from the heart, and the heart was built. The heart was built here. Right, here. right. Yeah. From the foundation that groups like Quinto Soul, Strickland, Tuan Mac, and other Milwaukee rappers have built over the years, comes a new generation. One of these rappers is Jonah Dene. 
Still in high school, she credits her influences from artists like Tupac, Lauryn Hill, and Lil Wayne, but also just from living in a bunch of places throughout the city and from battle rapping on the school bus. On the south side, south side is, because we, it was more so on the south and north side here is where I lived at from like my younger years until now. But like being on the south side of Milwaukee is where I've made most of my foundest in, uh, memories as a child. That's how, that's where I got into troubles and then that's where, you know, I grew from it and I began to find um, people around me, especially school, you know, that's a huge aspect I take from my environment here in the city is school, just going to public school here and, you know, just finding like-minded people who were like me, uh, people who weren't as much uh, like-minded as me, who were, but they still influenced me because they came from similar households, they came from similar struggles, they came from, you know, just having people around me that wants to pave way for themselves is everywhere here in the city, you know? Um, everywhere you go, you know? You, you don't know what you may come across yeah. here. It's always so sudden. And then another thing I'd like to add, I was doing battle rap. At my old school back up in eighth grade, I had met a friend of mine at the time, and we used to ride the same bus route together, right? And, you know, we would just go head to head, and I would win every time. <laughs> Every You're not time. shy about it, are you? No, nah, I can say this with the most pride. I won every time, and that definitely gave me the confidence. Like, whoa, you know, I had the whole bus lit. I had the whole bus just rocking, and you know, as soon as I would get dropped out, they'd be like, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I, I love, that's what hip hop is, you know, battle rap, um, uh, storytelling, um, there's freestyle, and I definitely take heat up in battle rap as well as an influence too. And now, hip-hop and aquaponics. First off, aquaponics is a farming technique that uses fish poop to fertilize crops and plant life. It's an ancient practice, with indigenous Americans and Egyptians and everyone in between using the technique dating back thousands of years. But what does it have to do with hip-hop? Elijah Brown, artist named Book of Eli, is an 18-year-old breakdancer, beat engineer, and currently in the True School program, True Aquapioneers. The Aqua Pioneers learn about water science and agriculture by making their own water filtration systems, learning about how water is and is not cared for in our city, and devising their own education techniques to get other young people interested and involved in conservation efforts. Eli traces his own hip-hop influences to many artists, specifically name-dropping Mos Def and 50 Cent. But he also credits Milwaukee institutions like True School, Trickle B Cafe, and the Sherman Phoenix for shaping his perspective. So I asked him how these influences inform his work with aquaponics. Um, so a lot of people uh, sometimes start to understand is like, our everyday life is hip hop. When you wake up, you eat some cereal, that's hip hop, you know? When you take care of the earth, that's hip hop. Hip hop is part of war peace. It's part of love, peace, and just like happiness and family. People will fail to understand that, look, if I take care of the earth, if I take care of our water, if I take care of our source to help us make sure that we're good, make sure our plants good and everything goes, then what is that? That's hip hop. Everything is one world, one piece. It sounds like to me is like the values that you have learned and maintained for yourself through through hip hop are showing through in, in places like aquaponics. Is that is that fair to say? Am I hearing that right? Yeah, totally, totally, totally. I know 
Uh, this is why I say to myself, how are we going to take care of us if we don't take care of our world? You know, like as you being, uh, as me being aquaponics engineer, like um, as me like growing plants from legitimately fish waste and water, you know, which is a big thing. And they'd be like, well, how is that hip hop? Well, I mean, you think of this, we have plants that die all the time because we have people throwing out their trash, you know, littering, and just really toxic chemicals. But yet, we're changing that. We're changing for the better good. We're changing We're changing the bad into the good, into community. You know, we're bringing life instead of death. And that's the whole part of hip hop, is to bring life. What Eli just said sums up the messages of all my interviews. Hip hop isn't just music. It isn't just beats. It isn't clothes. It isn't commercials. It's a way of life. The city of Milwaukee has proclaimed this week August 21st to 27th, to be Hip Hop Week, a week full of breakdancing, films, contests, discussions, performances, and more, all centered around hip hop. But hearing Eli talk about how he lives hip hop in everything he does, it's clearly more than just the music, the fashion, the movies, the performances, all of that. It's in the air we breathe. It's how you carry yourself every day. It's how you better your community. It's how you make life out of thin air. And this isn't just me saying this. Everyone I talked to spoke to this idea of living hip-hop, not just performing it. Hip-hop has just is, is been there for me. It's like a family member that just that doesn't die, that's walked, that's seen me through through everything, bro, the good and the bad. It's, it's, in the it's so honest. And you, and you do all these things without even knowing you're doing it. it it's, it's just instilled in us. Like, words probably do something every day that he don't even realize is hip-hop, but it's hip-hop. The question is, like, when I was younger, I didn't know the difference. First person I heard that kind of clarified it for me was KRS-One when he said rap is something you do, hip hop is something you live. I was like, oh, okay, that's the difference. So that's the thing about it. You can do anything you want to do, right? Just because you want to be a rapper or be into sports or whatever, expand, broaden your mind and do more because you can. Once you get into hip hop. Everything that we roll and write in our music, we lift it. You know what I'm saying? Whether the grimy songs, the struggle songs, we really lift that. Breathing and eating it, <laughs> like, it's something, <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's definitely something that where words cannot describe, and hip-hop is just life, really. For Lake Effect, and for Milwaukee's hip-hop culture, I'm Sam Woods. Sleeping, I can drink, I repose, these kids knowing they got gold, get melatonin, and hurt, don't it? I'm keeping cold, already knowing it ain't motion, blowing jobs, she called that hustle, that's really hope. I'm on the road, just let and that wraps up today's show. Thank you so much for being here with us. I'm Joy Powers. If you missed any of today's conversations, or if you'd like to take Lake Effect on the go, download our podcast. Search for Lake Effect wherever you get your podcasts to listen to all of our shows on demand. Tomorrow on Lake Effect, we'll explore how Milwaukee became known as the Cream City. Plus, we'll learn why pull tabs are such a big part of Milwaukee bar culture. That's all tomorrow at noon, right here on Lake Effect. On listener-supported 89.7 WUWM, Milwaukee's NPR. Irrelevant, literally. My territory, you tear the cores accordingly. They really bore me, bore the explorer. I'm finding Dory on the door me. I'm just enjoying it. Y'all's annoying. They unemployed. Don't hear no noise. I'm flipping coin and better foil. Don't have no choice. I roll a voice and they gon' see just